Uh, it says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not good, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John, he's talking about John the Baptist, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray real quick before we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, would you open our minds and our hearts to uh, receive your word? I pray that what is true and good and right and beautiful would uh, go toward the effect of changing our hearts. Father, whatever is not of that, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, We've all got hands. I've got two of them. Most of you have two of them. I have very average size hands. Many of y'all know Bo Berman, who's an assistant pastor at Redeemer uh, Presbyterian Church here in town. Not Bo, but Bo's dad has the biggest hands I've ever seen. I don't know if you've ever seen Bo's dad, but he's about 6'6". He was an All-American basketball player at Arizona uh, for a year before he flunked out. But anyway, um, (laughs) he is this huge man. And I remember Sarah and I used him, uh, started using him as a realtor whenever we moved to Tulsa. And I remember the first time I shook his hand, it just, it was like this. I just shook his hand and his fingers were like up to here on my wrist. His hands are massive. And then Bo and I, strangely enough, one day we were talking about the size of his dad's hands. And um, he just said, they're the biggest hands I've ever seen. And so I went back the next day at, or the next Sunday at church and looked at his dad's hands. And I'm not kidding. His fingers are that on mine. He could catch a basketball like if it was thrown to him. He could just catch it like that. They're huge, huge hands. Jesus doesn't have huge hands, and we don't know about that. But <laughs> this passage is talking all about things that are done at the hand of Jesus. They're talking about things which come through his hands, and they even, a little bit through the middle, talk about how we are safe and secure in Jesus because we are in his hands, and we're in the hands of the Father. 
And so we're going to talk about two things. The first thing we're going to talk about is the signs that are done by the hand of Jesus. The signs that are done about the hand of Jesus. And the first thing I want to see about this is that um, whether or not you've realized this, that John, throughout the time thus far we've been in, the, in this book, he uses the word sign to talk about miracles. Okay? He doesn't even use sign tonight. He actually changes it up again and uses the word works. Okay? So now Jesus is talking about doing these works from the Father. What he's saying are signs. Jesus has been doing these miracles. Okay, and so Jesus is in dialogue with the Jews again, most likely some of the Pharisees and scribes who he's been talking with up to this point and who already wanted to kill him. He's talking to them again, and he talks a lot about these signs and works that he had been performing. And they open this discussion, the Pharisees do, or the Jews do, with a question. Okay, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Now what's interesting about this is that it says, not just keep us, in the Greek it says, how long will you keep our souls in suspense? Now, what's weird about this? What's weird? The last several weeks, for the last many weeks now, we've been seeing that these people already wanted to kill Jesus. He had made them so mad by what he was saying that, like, what are they doing by coming up and doing, like, oh, we're still in limbo, Jesus. Like, we don't know who you are yet. Um, It's just not true. Uh, And so whether they're, like, antagonizing him or just giving him these rhetorical questions to make him look, supposedly look stupid in front of people, we just don't know what's happening. Which is really, I don't know, it's it's not the safest thing to do when someone has claimed to, I don't know, be God. And you go up and start, like, taunting him and making fun and doing all these things. And he's, meanwhile, done all these miraculous signs and wonders. But nonetheless, this is what they're doing. How long will you keep our souls in suspense? There are three things I want to see Uh, about these works that are done at the hands of Jesus. The first is that he stresses again and again, again and again, the works he's been performing are works of the Father. That Jesus is doing the works of the Father. We see it in verse 25, if you look. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name. And then again in verse 32, he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Also in verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Why? Why? Why would Jesus be so intent on making this as explicit as possible? That the works and all these great signs and wonders and miracles that he's been doing are from the Father. Why is he doing this? Well, see, we're asking this semester, who is Jesus? But to those people around him, they're all wondering, who is the Messiah? Who is going to be the one who comes and frees us from our captivity? Who comes and takes us from bondage? where They've been bondage to the Romans in their government. Um, they had been in bondage to their sin. All these things. Who, was, who is the Messiah? When, when is Christ going to come? So that's what they're asking. They had an expectation, again, you all know this by now, that one day, someday, there would be this one man, this Messiah, who would come and liberate them from all that would oppress them. He would come and set them free finally. And what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, there were even prophecies about people who were blind, who would one day be made to see, and that the deaf would be made to hear, their their ears would be unstopped, and their eyes would be opened. And what we've already seen is Jesus is already doing these things. He already is giving sight to the blind, and yet these people still refused him, and they wanted to kill him. Before we had um, Nora Klein, Sarah and I went up to New York City on a baby moon. Have you ever heard that? It's like a honeymoon, except it's before you have your first baby because you realize that the trips you take for the next, I don't know, 25 years are never going to be alone. So, that's just if you only have a couple kids. That's right. If you were like the Mosers and you have nine kids, you're never going on a vacation by yourself. All the more reason for a baby moon. 
So uh, we took a baby moon to New York City. I talked somehow. Sarah's like six and a half months pregnant. She's feeling it. <laughs> She's not very comfortable. I talked her into going to New York City in, uh, at the beginning of January, which is naturally the best time to go, right? <laughs> well, um, it was, we looked at the forecast several days out. The high was going to be 25 for our whole trip. So, uh, and it held true. We got off uh, the plane and through the subways. We, like, came up to the world from in the subway, and it was 23, and the wind was just, like, flowing down the tunnels at Times Square. I mean, just in between the buildings. It was howling. It was freezing. Um, before too long, we were in the stores, and we had gotten these ridiculous-looking hats, which were probably really cool, but, again, I felt dumb because I'm not, I don't always know what's cool and what's not. But um, they were really warm, and that's all that mattered. Well, all that to say, by the end of that first day, we would, had walked around Central Park, and we're over on the east side of the park. And I looked over, and there's this massive synagogue, huge Jewish synagogue. And I had never been in a synagogue because I'm from Oklahoma, and we don't often have a lot of um, Jewish people here. But we went in. I had been studying Hebrew in seminary. I had taken a year and a half of it by that point. So I was like, sweet, I can go in. I can read stuff. This will be awesome. I was really excited about it, actually. And um, so we went in, and this lady kind of took us inside. She was an older lady who was sitting in the front desk. She took us inside. It was just Sarah and I. And we walked into the worship hall, and it was amazing. It was beautiful, and all these kind of Jewish uh, relics and everything were in there. And I asked the lady, I said, well, what do you think about Jesus? She said, oh, he was a good man. He was a good man. And I said, what do you think about the Messiah? Was Jesus the Messiah? And she said, no, we're still waiting on the Messiah. I said, okay. You see, even today, uh, and we later on went in the conversation, and she's kind of of a, a liberal strand of, of Judaism, which... She actually doesn't even think the Messiah is going to be a person. She thinks it's kind of like this coming age, which is fine, whatever. But the point is, is that Jews even today are still waiting on this idea of a Messiah, of someone or something or some age to come and set this world free, to come and set them free from what oppresses them or what holds them down. So no less is it in the minds of these people. Their, their minds were pregnant with this idea that this Messiah was coming. Who is he? Jesus again and again in this passage is saying, look, the works I am doing, these miracles, are not of my own accord. I'm not doing these things just as some young upstart trying to get a following. Because there were those people in that day. Jesus is saying, I'm doing the works of my Father, who he has already claimed to be is the God of Abraham. They were furious. He is the Messiah, he said, and he says he's coming to do his Father's business. The works he does by his hands are the works of the Father. Second thing we see about the works and the signs, uh, not only is they from the Father, we see that they bear witness about his divinity. They bear witness that Jesus is not a normal man, but that he is divine. We see this in verse 25. Uh, he says, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And kind of skip down a little bit and go to verse 30. And it says, I and the Father are one. And then down 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see, there have been many well-meaning people since Jesus' time who tried to do Christianity a favor and kind of help us out of this dilemma because Jesus does this crazy thing and he, he claims to be God. Now, that's weird, all right? Not many people throughout history have claimed, some have, and they prove themselves to be crazy later in life, but Jesus was saying that he was God and he was doing all these things 
that someone who claimed to be God and have all of the world in his hands would be able to do. Jesus was saying it and backing it up. And then heretics throughout the age have tried to come and help Christians and say, oh, no, that's not what Jesus meant. That he wasn't really God. Maybe he kind of was some lesser thing, not man, but not God. Or that maybe he became God as he was doing all these works. But what, he, what Jesus is saying is, no, I've always been God. That these works that I do validate who I am, and that is God. Okay, they bear witness to his, um, to his divinity. Here's a question. If Jesus was not God, if he, if he was not really claiming to be this, why does verse 31 happen? Why does verse 31 happen? What's interesting about verse 31, it says they picked up stones again to stone him, is that they're in Solomon's colonnade, which is at the temple. It is a fairly clean place, and there are tons of people, but there wouldn't have been like big stones there. And we get a better picture of this in the Greek. It says that they carried stones to stone him. That the Jews already wanted to kill him. They already knew what they thought about Jesus. They're taunting him. They wanted to kill him because he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be their God. And they didn't like that. And um, obviously it really made them mad. (laughs) But what happened at the end of last week? I don't know if you all remember, but the very last thing we read last week said these are not, uh, they're talking about Jesus, people have been divisive over him, and they said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Can a demon? No, he can't. Only God can do that. And Jesus had just done that. Jesus is God is what's happening. We need to remember that Jesus said to these same Jews, before Abraham was, I am. He is God. I think we're kind of got that by now. He had always been God. He was never anything but God. Jesus is both God and man. That is a huge category. And this is why it matters. That if Jesus is God, then Jesus can do miracles. Because God, by his very definition, is outside of nature. He is not bound by the limits of nature. That miracles are something that if there is a God... I believe there is with my whole heart. But if there is a God, miracles are something that that God can do. He's not bound in this physical creation. Okay? Think about this. Some people say that miracles can't happen. I just know they can't happen. They're impossible. Let's think about this conversation from two people. One, and let's take a miracle such as the resurrection. It's kind of a big deal. It's like the foundation of Christianity. Um, that Jesus raised from the dead, Okay? Jesus rose from the dead, says one guy. The second guy says, no, he didn't. Uh, third guy says, uh, why don't you think so? Well, because miracles are impossible. Well, why are they impossible? Because I've never seen one. But there are lots of people who have, and we have recordings of that in Scripture. Uh, there are lots of people who have seen miracles. They're all wrong. How do you know they're all wrong? Because miracles are impossible. See, they've stated at the premises, and this is what usually happens with people. They decide before they even go in that miracles are impossible. They can't happen. They're outside of the normal course of nature. And so they end up in this circular argument, which doesn't work. And we can talk about this later. But there are several defeaters and reasons why people don't believe in miracles and why they don't believe that Jesus could be God because he claims to do these miracles. But they're out there, and that Jesus is coming and saying, no, there's there's an incredibly arrogant thing about that position. Because if you're saying that I know miracles haven't happened because I haven't seen them, or because I know they're impossible, you're saying that you've known everything for all time. 
that you know you have in your grasp and in your mind the happenings of all of history. And I don't know if many of us would want to claim that, um, but nonetheless, people do. And there's a second kind of defeater that people throw up to not believing in miracles, not thinking that Jesus could be God. It says this, I have to see it to believe it. That just to read it in this silly thing that y'all call the Bible and you call God's Word, to just read it in the Bible is not enough. I have to see it with my own eyes. What is wrong with this? Is this person is not, they're not skeptical of the Bible. I mean, that, that may be what they're saying they're skeptical of, but they have to be skeptical of written records because that's what the Bible is. There are lots of other books. This person doesn't live this out in their own life. They base their life out off lots of things they haven't seen with their own eyes. They believe all sorts of things about history that they didn't witness. And so for them just to dis- disregard the Bible and say, it's not true, I didn't see it, is not a good reason to not believe in miracles. Okay, now whether or not those are your arguments or why you may not believe that, I don't know. But now, apart from the logical side of it, think about this. Do you really want to live in a world where miracles are not possible? Do you really want to? Do you really want for the naturalistic, everything that just happens for a reason and cause and effect, do you want that to be all there is? And here's where this matters. That if you're not a Christian tonight or if you doubt the supernatural or miracles or the works or whatever, then why is it when people die who you know we're not followers of Jesus, why is it that you want them to be in a better place? Why is it that you talk about being, why is it that people talk about them being in a better place? Because if they're to hold true to their beliefs and what they think is right about the world, that the natural is all there is, then they just die. There, there is no better place. There is nothing, there is no life after death. That is all in the supernatural. You see, it's also the reason why when our friends and family have cancer, when our people around us, they get diagnosed with a brain tumor or something that's terrible and it's like stage four and it's not going to just reverse on its own. It's why we start praying. It's why we start hoping that God would come and intervene and bring something miraculous to happen, something to change the normal course of events. Because we long for there to be something more than just what this world has. We long for there to be a miraculous element to this world. It's crazy that people who would deny would deny anything about this, all of a sudden in those times, doctors even, you talk to a lot of doctors, most doctors will admit to you that there is something that goes on in the hospital which just doesn't make sense. That people heal when they shouldn't heal. And they say it can't just be their body because they've studied these things thousands of times and the normal course would be for that to go downhill. But it doesn't. The truth is that we're created in the image of God. Of a God who is the God of supernatural. And so we have it hardwired into us in our makeup that we long for these things. We long for things to be made right when it doesn't seem they could be made right. We long... For, to believe that when my friend named Martin, who I met a couple years ago, who was in Scotland, when he was in this crazy head-on wreck, that this lady named Mary, who is a nurse in Inverness, that she came and helped him out of his wreckage. He was basically unharmed in a 70-mile-an-hour head-on collision. He went to go find Mary at all the hospitals in Inverness. He could not find her. She didn't exist as a person. And what Martin says, he's like, I just don't know what else to do other than to say that 
the Lord sent somebody to help me. Because she did not exist as a person. She didn't. We want to believe things like that because we're in the image of God and it is in us to do that. Don't suppress those desires. Don't suppress it. It's from God. Those are right and those are innate. Those are real. Believe them. Jesus is uh, God who claims to do miracles and who did miracles. So naturally, we see that by these uh, signs of the hand of Jesus um, that they call us to faith. It's not some blind faith. It's anything but a blind faith. Let's read 38 again. He says, But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is telling these people who wanted to stone him for claiming to be God that even if they can't believe what he says, and even if they can't assent to the fact that he's claiming to be God, then at least acknowledge that I've been doing these things right in front of your eyes, that that guy used to be blind and now he sees. He's been doing all these miracles. We haven't talked about a lot of them this semester, but he's doing all these things. He's at least saying, believe the works. That even though I can't fit into this screwed up framework of who you think Messiah is, what are you going to do with my works? What are we going to do with the works that have been done at the hand of Jesus? Let these signs bring you to faith in me, is what he's saying, and who I claim to be. J.C. Ryle, uh, a pastor and a commentator, says this. He says, we're so familiar, and even in our day, Right? This is most of us who have kind of grown up in the church where we hear these stories about miracles and it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It says this, We're so familiar with hearing or reading about these miracles that we're apt to forget the mighty lesson they teach. Catch this. He says, They teach that he who worked these miracles must be nothing less than very God. He who could suspend the laws of creation must be one who ought to be thoroughly believed and implicitly obeyed. To reject one who confirmed his mission by such mighty works is the height of ignorance and folly. To believe a man who claimed to be God and backed it up by what he did, to reject that, as J.C. Ryle says, is the height of ignorance and folly. Where do miracles fit in your life? Where do they fit in your framework, in your worldview of what can actually happen? Is there a place for supernatural? Is there a place for this in your worldview? Or is it closed off to everything like this? C.S. Lewis says that a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He doesn't give us that option. He says he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg which is a strange choice, but um, or else he would be the devil of hell. That he's either crazy or he's the devil. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Either, uh, you must make your choice, he says. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Friends, we have to realize that Jesus' disciples, those who knew him best, were willing to die, to be crucified like Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. They were willing to be murdered for the things they saw Jesus do. For the things he said that they wanted to be murdered. They said, take it. I've seen it. I know it's true. How do you account for that? Either they were all crazy, and they all just decided to believe a lie, and they drank the Kool-Aid, and they all just decided to do it. Or they knew what they had seen. And they went out and spread and told the world. And thus you have, I don't know, 
the church. It came from somewhere. It came from Jesus' disciples and those people who saw him do these things. This is why in Tulsa, Oklahoma right now, there's 700 churches. It's because these men who follow Jesus saw him do these miracles. And they said, I'll, I'll die for it. I will die for it. It is true. I touched him. He, this man didn't see. Now he sees. He used to be dead. Now he's raised. I believe it. I'll die. I just need to tell people about it. What do you do with that? Jesus came and said things like, I'm the light of the world. I'm the true bread of life. I'm the living water. I'm the good shepherd. He says, whoever comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. Friends, let these works speak to you. Let the works of the hand of Jesus call you to faith. The second thing we see tonight is that we can be safe and secure in the hands of Jesus. We can be safe and secure in these same hands. And this leads right into um, this whole concept of assurance of salvation. How can I know that I can know that I'm saved? Many of y'all, we've talked about this. We've brought it up whenever we're talking over lunch or whatever, that I want to know, but I don't feel it. I want to feel it, I don't. I feel like God's mad at me or He's angry with me. Last week we talked a lot about the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep and how sheep would follow a shepherd and how a shepherd knows his sheep intimately and how Jesus is the good shepherd came to lay down his life for his sheep. The very picture of intimacy and love. Who are his sheep? They're those who believe. Those who believe in him. And what does this passage tell us about those sheep? says they're secure in the hands of Jesus. Let's read verse 24 through 30 real quick. It says, How long will you keep us in suspense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're making fun of him. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There are two ways this passage talks about us being secure in the hands of Jesus. The first way is that he says, my sheep will have eternal life. My sheep will have eternal life, and they will not perish. Or as the phrase literally says, they will not die eternally. I love that, because it doesn't, it doesn't say that you're not actually going to physically die. Because we are, we all know that these lives we have here on earth lead to death. We will physically die unless Jesus comes back before that. He says you won't die eternally. Death is not the final stage for Christians. That you do live forever. There is this thing called eternal life where Jesus comes and says he's giving to his sheep. Okay? And the word there for will not is, in the Greek language, is the strongest possible way to say no. It's like, certainly not. Or, not not. Or, I know it got confusing with the not-a-day thing. But Jesus is serious, and he's saying, you will certainly most not perish. You will live forever. And he says that by those who are united to him by faith, by virtue of what was coming in his life, the fact that he knew that he was going to die, and that one day he would be raised again, he's saying if your faith is in him and you're united to him, that death is not the final word for you either. That you will be raised to new life gloriously one day. And that is the hope of the Christian. Is that death is not the final word. We don't fear death as this 
imminent, awful ending to our life. It's that when we die, we finally live. What happens when Jesus sends His Holy Spirit into the hearts of His sheep is that we can start to live as if this world now is not all that there is. And that means two things at least. It means that we don't have to, be, we don't have to try and find our, our ultimate satisfaction right now. What do I mean by that? I mean that you don't have to go and pursue pleasure and entertainment and joy and satisfaction just ad nauseum right now. That doesn't have to be the only thing you live for in life. And that means that you can do things like wake up at a 7.45 on a Saturday morning and go to Habitat when you'd rather sleep till 2. It means that you can die to yourself a little bit in each day. That even though you really want to be playing Halo 3, that you can sit and talk to your roommate about the fact that her boyfriend or that your, her girlfriend, his girlfriend just broke up with him. And you can sit down and talk to that person and let them cry on your shoulder when you can be thinking of 8,000 things you could be doing. That this life does not have to be where you find your greatest satisfaction and hope. Although Jesus does give us reason to be hopeful now. We can prolong that because the Christian has a hope of a better life. A more full life. A life without sin, which we can't comprehend. Most of us think, oh, finally I can stop doing that one thing. Or that list of things that I can't stop doing. But that's even screwed up thinking too. We just, our minds are polluted by sin. So we can't even get our minds around what it would be to live like in a world without sin. But this passage is saying that this life is not all there is. There is a world coming when there will be no sin. So die to yourself a little now. Put others ahead of your own desires. And friends, when you start talking like this, you start sounding an awful lot like Jesus. Because he did these things. He sounded this way. You want to know, you want your friends to come to know Jesus, start doing things that Jesus did. Lay down your life for them. Start to love them. Start to give them your time and your energy and your efforts. Then they will know the hope that's in you, and then you have to give a reason for it. Second thing this means is that we can take an honest look at the brokenness around us in this world and know that it's temporary. And know that you won't always hurt in the way that you hurt. That you won't always struggle with the same thing. The havoc that sin is wreaking on your body and your mind and your relationships and your spirit and your soul, all of this is not a forever kind of thing. That it's temporary. That there is hope of life eternal where these things will not be. Jesus is saying that is as certain as the fact that I changed this man's eyes from blind to seeing. You're secure in the Father's hand because of this. And secondly and lastly, on this point, we see that we're secure in the hands of Jesus and that no one, no one, or no thing, or no demon, or no spirit, nothing can take you away. Or the word says, steal or drag you away. Look, it can't. And this is why. In verse 28 and 29, Jesus draws a parallel and equates himself with God the Father. And says that no thing, whether it's physical or spiritual, the word there is very ambiguous. It's not no man. It's that no thing, nothing, can draw you away uh, from his hands. Why? And this is important. And try to follow this chain with me. He's saying because God is greater than all. For that, after all, what is what it means to be God. We talked about that. All-powerful. God is greater than everything. Right? Uh, and Jesus is claiming to be God. So Jesus then is all-powerful. He is greater than all. 
And what happens then when the all-powerful God becomes a man and then lays down his life for his sheep, willingly goes to death to pay for the sins of his people? What does that mean? When Jesus as the good shepherd comes and willingly submits, pursues his lost sheep, submits to death, brings them to himself, and catch this, he applies his blood to our hearts and he says, look, those people are mine. Those people who believe in me, you see the blood on their forehead. You see the blood that covers them. That's my blood. I paid for it. You can't have them back, Satan. You can't have them back, whatever. They are my sheep. And I'm God. There's nothing greater than me. You can't have them. And so, friends, tonight, if you're a Christian, this is what this means. You didn't get yourself into this. Jesus came and pursued you. He came and changed your heart. And you accepted Him and you believed in Him by faith. And His mark of His blood is on you. And you can't get out of it. I don't know if you wanted to, but sorry. Like, you're in. Find the great rest that's in that. The great comfort that's in that. That you can't undo your salvation. Because it wasn't you who got, it in, got into it in the first place. Jesus is the one who dies for us. His blood is on us. You can have assurance. Your assurance was bought by God. When He gave His Son. The price He paid was His only Son. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior, you can rest secure in the hands of Jesus because His death and His blood is your security. This is the gospel. This is the gospel and the the good news of Christianity. This means that your acceptance before God is not based on what you do. It's not. It's not. That God is no more happy with you on your best day or sad with you on your worst day because He looks at you and you're accepted and secure in Him because of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has done alone. Let's all take a deep breath and say, thank you. Because that's the response for one who realizes that, look, that means that when I haven't had a quiet time for 12 months, that God, he's not mad at me. He's not ashamed of me. Like a loving parent, he would want to be near me. But he's not making me feel guilty for this. That when you haven't prayed It doesn't mean that next time you pray, after however long, you have to open up by saying, God, I'm sorry. (laughs) Which is what we do, right? We feel like we owe God that, that He's mad at us. But friends, Jesus' blood is on us. We are children of God if your faith is in Him. Jesus has come and redeemed you and atoned for you by His blood. You can have assurance of salvation because your salvation was a gift to begin with. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, many of y'all have memorized this verse, but he says what? He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your works. But this faith, he said, is a gift of God. Faith itself is a gift. It's given to you. And what does that mean? It means that no man should boast. Tonight again, in talking about the the signs performed by the hands of Jesus, And also the security that believers have in these hands. We're pushed again to the issue of faith. 
of faith in this one who has claimed to be God. So what is faith? What what would it mean to have faith in Jesus? What does that even look like? It means this. It means that you quit running from your sin, from the ways that you failed yourself and others or your parents or whatever. Ultimately, you fail God. You stop running from that. You stop blaming others for the reasons that you're doing the things you're doing. And you just look and you cry out to God and say, I'm sorry, I've done it. These things are mine. I've done them in my own initiative. No one else is making me do them. And you repent. And you say, I want to change. Help me to change. So you have repentance and there's faith. Believe. Believe that this is um, the way forward. That Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And that he's the only way to do that. Um, he's the only way who can get, uh, that you can get change that you want. He's the only way that you're going to stop doing the thing you can't stop doing. But maybe you're a Christian tonight and you struggle with assurance of salvation. What would it look like for you? What's the way forward for you? It's the same thing, guys. Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. Repent that you think that it's your own doing that has somehow gotten you into this or that's keeping you in. And believe again in Jesus and the fact that it's his blood that is on you. Friends, look at the hands of Jesus. And know that they are the hands that can keep you secure. They're the same hands that performed all those signs. And they were stretched out wide on a cross. And blood dripped from them. But it's the blood that has fallen on our head that Jesus said, No, he's mine now. Or she's mine now. And you can't take them away from me. I bought them. Look to Jesus in faith. It is the way forward. It's the only way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would apply this to our hearts, that you'd help us to believe, help our unbelief. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.